0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am your host, uh, Jeremy Goldcorn, solo tonight. Uh, joining me tonight, I have Alice Liu, an old colleague, uh, a former Seneca guest, twice I think, managing editor of Pathlight, a literary magazine, uh, and currently translating the next Han Han book that will appear in English together with, uh, I have to own up to the incestuous nepotism, my Danway colleague, Joel Martinson, who is her husband. Um, And uh, we are going to talk tonight uh, with a first-time Seneca guest. We're very happy to welcome you, uh, Karen Ma. Uh, Welcome, Karen.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Karen is uh, an author. Uh, uh, Her debut novel, uh, Excess Baggage, uh, was published um, uh, this year. And... She is uh, somebody with a very interesting background. She was born in mainland China, uh, raised in Hong Kong and Japan, uh, and educated in the U.S. Um, She speaks English, Mandarin, and Japanese. Uh, She's worked as a reporter for Kyoto News, NHK Radio in Japan. She's written for The New York Times, um, The South China Morning Post, and a, a variety of other publications. Um, she is also the author of a nonfiction book, "The, M- the Modern Madam Butterfly: Fantasy and Reality of Japanese Cross-Cultural Relationships." Uh, but now uh, she's published her first novel, and we're going to talk tonight uh, primarily about her novel and then talk about some other themes, uh, literary and uh, connected with life in Asia and elsewhere. So welcome again, Karen. Thanks very much very for being appreciate on the show.:. The opportunity. Um, so uh, can you tell us about the book? What's the story?
1: Um, I, I think the easiest way to introduce a book is, uh, is uh, to describe it as a Chinese immigration tale that takes place in Japan. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, uh, literature in English that uh, describes the uh, Chinese diaspora experience in the West. But but this book is um, slightly different because the setting is in Asia, in Japan to be precise. Um, So that's one way to describe it. Another way to describe it is that this is really a tale about how two Chinese sisters, um, divided by history and a huge cultural divide, and how they have to uh, get beyond, confront the family's past. And, um, so you have
0: one, one sister growing up in Japan and the other one is in correct. China.
1: And there's a gap of 30 years where the two sisters did not see each other. And, and how they have to um, come, you know, come to terms with their family's past and how they must find their own places in a foreign country and, and why they find the meanings uh, of what a home is.
0: And uh, obviously, I mean, there must be a certain amount of autobiographical material in it because you are a, a Chinese woman who grew up partly in Japan. Uh, I mean, so both in terms of your character in the novel and your own experience. I mean, how how is it growing up Chinese in Japan?
1: I, first of all, I, I like to say that this book is uh, semi autobiographical. <clears throat> I I um I did base a lot of the uh say the larger uh theme uh, on my family's history but then I have um, changed a lot of the uh, minor things and then I I created new characters and I make a lot of the characters composites of people um, that I know so it's not entirely biographical Um, but but growing up your question is growing up Chinese in um, overseas or
0: Japan in
1: Japan yeah Um, see, a lot of people assume that just because you are Asian, you know, growing up in Asia, perhaps is easier. But I think I I, I hear I hear people, there are a lot of Chinese um, immigrants living in Thailand, that may be true to a certain extent. But I think being Asian, living in Japan is uh, a little more difficult. Because, uh, and I don't, mean that just for Asians. I think for foreigners, the experience is more extreme because um, the best way to describe the Japanese society is that, um, you know, the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. They, they, there's a very and if you're strong, a foreigner, you're a nail. Yeah, there's, a, there's a very strong sense of uh, conformity. And, and anybody who looks a little different uh, definitely gets into trouble. Um, so, give you an example. If, if you're a Japanese student going to school, um, and and you happen to have uh, lighter lighter hair, and they, they think that you dye your hair, and they you, you become the subject of taunting. So so then, being Asian, um, you know, living in Japan, uh, in some ways you can sort of hide, uh, you know, underneath your skin because you look like other Japanese. Um, however, this this could also become a problem because uh, you can go to the extreme of trying to hire yourself. Um, I come across I come across, say, Chinese uh, second generation um, Chinese living in Yokohama. and they, for the longest time, they don't celebrate Chinese New Year just because they don't want to draw attention. To themselves,
0: How, Alice. I mean, you—you you grew up partly in, in in London. How does that uh, compare, you think, with because I mean, Britain is often thought of as at least compared to America, a relatively cold society
2: for foreigners. Um, well, so Britain recently, I think, ever since I guess the 1990s and 2000s, I think we've had this great emphasis on the multicultural nation. So, generally speaking, the the official line is to embrace. Other cultures, so you know, office workers will go to Chinatown at lunchtime and have them some, and then also at Chinese New Year, there'll be a big dragon uh, parade, you know, a lion dance around Chinatown also in, uh, and this year, I think they even had posters around London, so they're really trying very hard to embrace it. Obviously, for people like myself and others who are part of the immigrant Chinese experience, it can get very, very uh, facetious and tiring this overpromotion of multiculturalism.
0: <laughs> you sort of feel like you're being made to be the token Chinese.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm definitely a token Chinese, all the way through university, high school, secondary school. Um, I lived in London from the age of seven to the age of 21, and there was no doubt always that I was the token Chinese person, speaking fluent English and studying English literature.
0: And Karen, you, you moved from Japan to the U.S., right?
1: Yes, uh, I I I went to uh, grad school in uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, I I lived there for a total of about eight years because after that, um, my husband and I um, moved back to New York. We lived there for two years.
0: So, w- when you first moved to the U.S. Uh, from J- Japan, was that a culture shock?
1: Um, I think on the West Coast, uh, I was. I, I guess I was comforted by the fact that there I did encounter a lot of Asians there, um, so so that was good. But although I was very bothered by their the stereotypical image of the Asian uh, women being, you know, easy. So, so which which I mean I'm off topic a little bit. That that that's what inspired me to to write the first nonfiction book, which is really about mutual um, misconceptions about you know Western man versus Asian women.
0: And uh, wow! So yeah, that. Uh, um, do you want to talk a little bit about your first book then? I mean, what what are the misconceptions, you know, what, what and how do you address them?
1: Well, when I was in Japan, uh, I the the Japanese at that time were embracing kokusaika or the internationalization big time, and and by that, what they really meant at that point was embracing westernization. You know, um, they the, the the Japanese really see themselves as white Asians, if you will. They they really they really want they always call themselves Japan and Asia, you know, so there's there's that, you know, gap, you know, in, in their self-perception. Um, so when they talk about internationalization, they it's it's all about going West. So so then I I came I came across a lot of these uh, Japanese women um, when they see Western men they have this giddy kind of giggly sort of laugh about you know oh he looks like Tom Cruise or, or you know there's this fantasizing Western. And the guy man.
0: is actually a complete dork, but <laughs> uh, is, that, <laughs> is Just, that what you're not saying? Let me let
1: me let me put it this way: it's it's very easy for Western men, um, at least in the '80s, you know they're mm. doing the bubble bubble years of Japan's um, economy they it's, it's quite easy there are a lot of so-called English teachers um, at, the, at the time and and I think that they they do tend to have inflated sort of sons of self that that were some sort of a uh, minor celebrities so it's very easy for them to to attract um, Japanese women who I don't know uh, don't seem to really have a realistic understanding um they they, they tend to equate uh you know the, what they see on the big screen hollywood screen uh, with with what they see on the street and and they over they over they tend to overread the kindness their gentleness oh uh you know he's opening the door for me therefore you know he must be a very kind man you know um but I also when I went to went to Seattle, I also saw the opposite where um man's total strangers would assume you know they'd try to talk to me and assume that um you know i i am somehow you know I'm easy i'm easier uh to get to know or my standards are somehow lower because I, I think this women's lip movement you know a lot of the men who are slighted, they feel like, M- let me try something different, maybe Asian women would be easier, they won't judge me as harshly. So so I, I saw this mutual misconception, and um, in, in this is something that I wanted to sort of, sort of clear up a little bit, and that's why I decided to write the book.
2: It's absolutely true, <laughs> both of those things. It's the experience of probably all Asian women, whether you're an immigrant to a Western country, or one that you have grown up in China, and when you were describing the um, foreign uh, guys in Japan, that's sort of how it is in China too. No, that's exactly. So I was going to say, thing. isn't it? Yeah. That
0: China, you're describing China now, aren't it's, you? It's yeah. happening here
2: yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, all the the British guys get the most, you know, the the most sensational sort of attention because they're supposed to be gentlemen, right? So if they open the door for a, a woman, a Chinese woman, she assumes that he's a gentleman and mm. that he'll treat her really well and then base him on Hugh Grant or someone they see in the movies. I mean, it's completely Chinese. And then when you go abroad, there's this great Tumblr, I think, called, you know, stuff that white guys say. Creepy white Creepy guys. Creepy white guys, yeah, CWGs.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, kind of you love me long time, basically. Yeah, the, they just they look at your profile picture you. yeah. and
2: they think that you'll be docile. And a great woman exactly. to go out
0: yeah. with. Do you tackle this at all in your novel, Carl? I, I, uh,
2: yeah, I have one chapter where I talk about
1: the Japanese uh, man and versus the Western man. You know, I have two uh, minor characters talking about um, how you know because they're Western women. It is true as a Western woman living in. In Japan, or, or by extension, living in China, it's much more difficult to find a partner um, who's also, you know, from America or from from the UK. Um, so they, in this, in, in in my book, I talk about having these two Western women talking about how difficult it is for them to date um, their own kind, if you will, and, and how they end up dating Japanese men and in, in, uh, I have this dialogue going on, you know, about how then they they each talk about their bad experiences with the what's a western guy where they don't really bother, you know, um, showing them a good time and they just assume that okay, let's just go to a restaurant and of course the restaurant is is closed that day and then they're just they're just kind of like okay, uh, let's go AA meaning you know, let's go Dutch, you know. And um, not really showing the woman the due respect whereas a Japanese um, man or would-be boyfriend will will try harder should we say that he would he would definitely uh, pick up the tap among other things you know, so I, I I talk a little bit about that.
0: Um. Can I switch uh, the subject a little bit? Uh, you've recently—I mean, you've lived in Beijing previously, but uh, you were in India in New Delhi, right, for mm, that's uh, about how, for five years. Five years from Beijing, mm-hmm. and then you came back to Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, did you write this book in in India?
1: Not really. It's been taking a long time, and, and, and you know all you know. If I total up the years, I, I think it's about ten years. I, I spend part of. Part of my time uh, living in Beijing, the first round, um, you know, finishing the novel. And then when I was in New Delhi, I was trying hard to find a publisher. So that's, you know, kind of editing a little bit and finding, spending most of the time finding a publisher
0: but it is a book about uh transience and e- e- emigration and moving Correct. and dislocation so I, I suppose again your own experiences must have informed this i mean what w- what is your how do you approach your uh completely checkered geographical past
1: you know when i when i was growing up in hong kong i um i had trouble really you know describing myself people say where are you from and and that was one question that that really bothered me i couldn't really pinpoint it people try to put you in a box you know i and i couldn't describe myself you know uh, so conveniently in one one single you know one word or one one short sentence so i have to say that oh well i was raised in hong kong you know although i i was having difficulty identifying myself as a hong konger either just because i experienced a lot of um, how should I put it? Not outright discrimination, but a lot of slice. Oh, you're a person from the big country, from the mainland. you know, So the undertone is that, you know, I wasn't sophisticated. I was just a country bumpkin. so so it was as I you know, then I started, you know living in Japan with my family, and then it you know it became then I had to start thinking, you know, how do I describe myself now? You know, in some ways, it was easier to say, you know, okay, I'm definitely from Hong Kong, just because then I put myself in a slightly different category because Japan is a very hierarchical society. If you say you're from mainland China, you somehow are even lower in the totem pole just because they, uh, in, in the 80s, the the book really takes place in the in, uh, early 90s. And so in the 80s and early 90s, if you say you're from mainland China, the first impression the people get, you know, in, in, people in Japan get, is that okay, you're a you're a immigrant, you know, like a, a, what is the word, economic immigrant. You, you know, came a, here poor. You yeah, came you came here poor. to make money. And so then, so then if I say, you know, I'm I'm from Hong Kong, I somehow, you know, would be put in a slightly better
0: <laughs> bracket. <laughs> right. Bracket
1: exactly. That, that's and, interesting. And huh? and then and then later I would say, oh, um, I I'm I'm Chinese American, and therefore somehow my my stick is slightly higher. You know, my stock is slightly higher. So, so I I, I learned to keep fine tuning you know, how do I Depending how, I on might how describe, you need to exactly,
0: You
2: know, how yeah. I describe myself.
0: You must have yeah. some experience with that,
2: Alice. I um. I read this great, uh, this is great Zadie Smith essay in her recent essay collection, and she sort of she's half black, and she you know famously wrote a best selling novel when she was twenty two, and she says the English English society she refines her accent to the extent that now the accent that she uses as a best selling author who living in New York is not the accent that she used when she was fifteen or sixteen and, and at a uh, comprehensive school in London. And what happens in in England especially is you have to have the right accent. And for Zadie Smith, for example, she obviously she looks black and she comes from a Jamaican mother and, you know, a a more working class, I guess, white father. So she's actually actively made her more herself more accepted in society. And that's just an an anecdote, I guess, because um, when I was listening to Karen, I guess I never really had to make myself seem Different. I didn't categorize myself very much because I think London was very multicultural. All of my friends at a, a primary and secondary school, either from Bangladesh, Pakistan, you know, there were more of, of people of Pakistani and Bangladeshi descent than there are of white descent. Um, so we were all Londoners to an extent and we all went to. But, you know, but the funny thing is I left London when I was 18. I went to a university 200 miles away from London and everyone was white. And they had a very high public school uh, intake, so that's sort of when I realised that.
0: And public school meaning private, private school, school translation yes. for translation, Americans who may not be aware.
2: You know, Winchester, Eton, and 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 I had you know one of my friends was a viscount's son, and all of this stuff, and you know, and then, and then it became very obvious that my parents did not come from a viscount, Eton background. That my parents were economic immigrants, right? They emigrated in the eighties, one of the first people to go to England um not america and despite being kind of state musicians in china they worked as you know maintenance men and waitresses right so it in a way it's economic migration but really for them it's a step down from what they were doing in china because they were very middle class and suddenly they became sort of working class so the background i came from is totally different to all of my university friends and you know my parents didn't really speak english let alone you know, So, so it, it became this really big effort to sort of define myself, and, and you were talking about identity, and that's sort of when it clicks that you sort of need to, especially in British society, defend your corner, you know, wh- which class do you come from, and sort of I'm a little bit classless, although I think my accent changes when I try to sound more classy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I think uh, here's a question for both of you. But start with you, Karen. How did you feel when you first moved back uh, to China as an adult?
1: So, when I first came back to China as an adult, I, I think I um, try very hard to be the northerner um, because I I was born a northerner, but I was raised in Hong Kong, and and there's a gap. People don't perceive me as an ordiner. Um I have a small frame, you know, and and they asked me, you know, so where are you from? You don't sound like a Beijinger. You know, of course, I don't roll my tongue the way they do, you know, coming to, uh, back to Beijing. Um, and um, so I say, oh, well, I am from Dongbei. And I said, you don't look like it. And you don't sound like you're from Dongbei. So that was a bit of a Disappointment, you know. So I, I had to recalibrate about well, how, then what, what, how do I, you know, how, where do I fit, you know? Uh, it was a bit of a struggle again, and um, so then, bit by bit, I, I had to come to terms with the fact that well, I have to accept the fact that maybe I'm from the south, you know, because I, I did spend a long time in Hong Kong and then a lot of years outside of China, you know. So, so there was, it was a bit.
0: Yeah, it's it's it traveling in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and you Alice?
2: so coming back to Beijing. I was born here, um, and I left in '07, and I f- my family is still here. So I have a definite sense of fitting in. Apart from my parents who are in London, everyone else is here. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it. I didn't have to recalibrate myself because I always felt like my d- identity was Chinese.
0: And right? you'd come, come back frequently over the and years. I, yeah,
2: and I came back every single summer.
0: Okay, so it wasn't sort of a, no, a, a shock in any no, way. No, it wasn't
2: a shock. Um, after seven, and I do do the er, Ian, right? Mm-hmm. So everything was, everyone assumes I'm Chinese and my Chinese is pretty good. So, but, you know, after seven years of living here, I do start making, you know, fish pies, <laughs> British fish fries from scratch, and I start like cutting hand-cut chips, and I start thinking about pubs. So I think really the cultural experience—it's sort of—it creeps up on you very slowly, and and you know the only way that I can describe it is being from two cultures and not denying it, but also at the same time realizing that you're never going to have both worlds.
1: Well, well, you know what, Jeremy, um, I, I found—I I think the place that I'm happy with right now is that i just describe myself as a overseas chinese hmm. because because i can't find a, a more fitting way of describing myself because i have been all over the place and
0: you don't have to say anything everyone knows overseas yeah, Chinese, yeah. and then that yeah. sort
1: of you know then i don't have to go into all the details of where i've been you know and they yeah. they seem happy to accept okay you're just another that, that's a
0: category that yeah. everyone can understand yeah they yeah. can recognize you know yeah. so yeah yeah that's very good does any part of you feel japanese
1: Gee, um, that's an interesting question. I I uh I think consciously I can never identify myself as as Japanese just because um I know in that society no matter how many years you live there, uh, no matter how good your Japanese is, um it's it's very hard for people to accept you. I know they have changed the uh, the immigration laws to to allow more foreigners to be, you know, uh, Japanese. You know, they have the you know the the honorary Japanese now. in a new category. Uh, Osan, you know the the great Chinese uh, baseball player. He was one of the first to be accepted as faux Japanese. But um, but even if you have the passport, I, I think a lot of people people on the street would still not you know accept you fully as a Japanese. So I I have no misconception that I I could ever be a Japanese. Um, but uh, but. Having said that, I do, I do know that I have learned a lot of, um, you know, sensibilities about, you know, the Japanese way, if you will. My husband tells me, oh, you're being Japanese here. And you know, the way I, I um, maybe the way I, I dress myself sometimes, you know, um, just because I spend my form, formidable years in Japan, I, I can't help but, you know, learn a few things without intending to, but it, it just happens.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I've been living in Beijing for 19 years, and I am occasionally reminded of that fact when I'm outside the country with my family, who are not always impressed with my manners. Um, Spitting on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't spit. <laughs> but, um, okay, both of you are um, literary people. Uh, you're writers. Uh, Alice, you're a translator and an editor also. Um, uh, and you're both uh, women, Um Let's talk about women in literature globally, in, Ch- in China and elsewhere. Um, is, it, is it harder for women to get published? Are the pressures on you different? Is there something different?
2: Such a can of worms. <laughs> like,
0: well, uh, let's open it because we often get accused on the show, Kai and I, of being a bit too frat boyish and having <laughs> you know too many male guests and everything. So but, I'd like to open this can of worms.
2: Uh, I actually... Is, is it hard to get published as a woman? Yes, um, Harder than a man. Yes,
0: Karen, do you agree?
1: I, I, I wasn't really thinking about being a man or woman. But I'm, I'm very keenly aware of the fact that the distance does make make it much more difficult for me to to be published.
2: I mean, women. I mean, there are so many reasons why this whole publishing industry does not accept women's literature. You know, they look at women's literature and they want. To like the characters, have you heard the whole debate that women's books should have characters that are likable? There was this really famous instance where uh, I think American or British author, maybe link it in the comments because I don't remember her name, but she got interviewed and she was published, and I she think she's American. And the the interviewer was like, "Why don't I like any of your characters?" And then she went crazy and she said, "Why the hell should I have to make my characters bookable because I'm a woman?" Uh-huh. You know. So in pu- the publishing industry, I think they're looking for certain pigeonholing factors if you are a woman in your fiction and you can't you not you're never treated as a man i mean you know you're not when you write your fiction will be treated as as being written by a woman and i think you see that everywhere i see in how many nobel laureates that there are that are women you look at the orange prize or whatever they're calling it in the uk that have to be set up for women you look at you know is it virago who published only women's writing i mean there's reasons that these things have been set up well, now that you mentioned that J.K. Rowling for the longest time did not
1: reveal that she was a woman, yeah, and and I have a friend, a journalist friend, um, whom I met in Japan. Um, you know, we worked uh, together as uh, you know reporters at a at a Japanese um, English edition of a Japanese paper, and she she go with her initials. She does not. Um, she did not, you know, reveal her her full name until much much later, and I and I think that that's a a way for her to to, you know, in her mind, she would would get more mileage, you know, not revealing her gender. Because
2: they look at J.K. Rowling, they think, oh, you know, could be anyone. You know, this great story, they don't look at her and think you're a woman. So therefore, subconsciously, the editors might think that in some way she... Should not be writing about witches and wizards. You know, you never know about this, and and I think women always have that in the back of their minds because of the number of times that they've been told you should be likable. You know, you should write characters about what you know. Write about domestic, like Jane Austen, and like you know, there's a reason why. But I mean, how
0: how how much of this now is the fault of the reading public, and how much of the reading public is female in most countries? I mean, my understanding is that. The people who buy books in America yeah. and England are women are eighty percent, or I don't know what the number is, but the, the, the right. majority. So,
2: but the people in power. Why are.
0: can't the readers change the economics of it, especially in this age of self publishing, where?
2: Because the people are in power, I think are mostly men. I think that most publishing houses have men, uh, like editor in chiefs, so or I guess whatever they call it. And the industry, you know, top editors of literary magazines are usually men, and you get the random female editor in chief, like the London Review of Books has famously a woman at the head. But I think they had a huge scandal because they don't have many women reviewers. They have, you know, one out of ten. So, you know, even when the editors are women, they can't change that the men are the most vocal when it comes to selecting books and reviewing books and being loud about literature.
0: Okay, I'd like to ask a related question then, which is something that's been sort of doing the rounds on the internet in the last six months or so, which is a discussion of... Uh, how vicious comments can get online when directed against women and there seems to be some kind of tendency where women get bashed uh, a lot harder in comment sections with a lot more violence i, know, I mean you know uh, explicit threats and very nasty language yeah. um and Although uh, your former point about women in publishing—you know—I work in a, a, a an office where there's a, a large publisher headed up by a woman, also a large Chinese website <laughs> headed up by a woman, and most of the people I know in publishing are women. And I think that if women don't like the situation, they should publish on Kindle and buy each other's books. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to push back on that. Mm-hmm. But I have personal experience through running Dunway and including some of your postings, Alice, yeah. on it, where the comment—we used to have a comment section on on org, and the comment section against women would get very very vicious in a very nasty um, sexist yeah. uh, almost borderline or sometimes over the line psych- psychopathic way yeah. why do you think this is
2: i think i think it's sort of i'll just go quickly but i mean it's sort of a the the version of looking at an asian and thinking oh that a- that Asian person coming towards me must be docile and unattractive, you know, men or women. And then when it comes to, it's, I'm not talking about Asian women here, I'm talking about women in general. If a woman is not fitting your stereotypes of whatever you want, and then she comes out with something that's sort of garbage, or, I don't know, comes out with a contentious post, then you're more likely to react against it because she's not confining to what your stereotype of a woman should be. And, you know, and yeah, and I, I got a lot of sexist comments on Dan Wei. You know, I got a lot of weird, you don't know what you're talking about comments, which recently I learned is actually called mansplaining, <laughs> which came from a, a post by an American female, uh, I shouldn't say female, doesn't matter, does it? An American writer called Rebecca Solnit, and she came up with this great anecdote where she was at a party and she's a man at the party and and the, and the man she sort of talks about this subject matter I think it's about one of the inventors of photography and the man opposite her starts going on about who this guy was and saying there was this great book and you know I read it and it's this bestseller in, at New York Times bestseller and it happened to be her book But he just went on and on and on and ignored that, you know, this... That she'd written the book. Well, no, he didn't realize that she had. So she was explaining to, oh, that guy that you're talking about. Okay, yeah, I read this great book. And New York Times is and it's all about this. And he explained the entire book. And at the end, her friend's like, she wrote the book. (laughs) So what happens is that women who actually have an opinion and want to talk about their knowledge, which is always equal to men, you know, will get men trying to explain back to them what they already know.
0: And what do you do? You, do you have any comments on this, Karen, and on on the online comment question?
1: I I have to admit I haven't really been paying a lot of attention online. We're still in transition, but I I, I just want to say that it feels to me that um, there is this being threatened. This sense, in the male the male uh, pride being challenged, and and uh, again this, uh, you know, especially maybe in I don't know whether it's, it's also. Uh, the fact that they're in Asia, there are cer- certain manners that they sort of, you know. Uh, you know,
0: I don't think this is a, a thing in Asia. I think this is think so? global. I mean, or at least, you know, English-speaking culture. I mean, because these articles we were talking about have nothing to do with China or Asia. They're just Americans and British people who observe the same thing. So I, it does seem to be a, a feature of Anglo-Saxon culture, at least. <laughs>
2: did, you, did you feel any, um, as a woman writer, do you feel any different?
1: Uh, published, being published, or yeah,
2: or not published?
1: Um, I yeah, I have to say I, I'm actually a little more um, removed from the mainstream because um, I I just have to say that in in um, in India, you know, um, which is a big um, a uh, 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 country of of great authors and a lot of publishing houses, but but uh, it's just being. Being Asian being a woman I, I found um you know is is just not the right place for me because um I think the Indian publishers are more interested in publishing South Asian authors, you know, so so um in that regard I feel like being Asian, being being a woman, being Asian, um, you know, if say if, if if my husband, you know, who's who's American, you know, it decided to write a book and he might have a better chance of getting published in in India uh, by Indian publisher, um, so.
0: Right, um, so uh, let's talk about India a little bit. So you lived in New Delhi for five years, and you know uh, now you're back in Beijing. How, how would you compare the two cities living as a, as a resident and anything that you com- care to compare?
1: Well, the, the most obvious uh, thing I noticed, of course, is the pollution. Um, it's worse here than in New Delhi. It's a lot Delhi. worse. Well, there's, has it been interesting? Every time I post about the bad weather, the bad air, uh, I do get people asking me, is it worse than in India? There seems to be a competition between the two
0: countries. <sighs> yeah, and recently there's been a lot of stuff in the media saying that New Delhi is as bad as I, Beijing, I, right? I,
1: I, I don't buy that. I, I My sense is that um, either the Wumai, first thing is, I didn't know about Wumai, this term, you know, smog you know, when I lived here five years ago. And suddenly, Umai everywhere. So I know there's a much greater awareness yeah um, you no know,
0: you used to call it fog
1: yeah they now call it yeah, smog and, right. you know it was, yeah, was so, in
0: town or something and, and, yeah, now and, it then, and Wuman, then you here. notice
1: people a lot more yeah. local people are wearing masks which is a good thing and then you you see them checking the index aqi index a lot more often so this is something very new and and i have to say in relation to your question earlier um, um In India, in Delhi, I don't know about other parts of India, in Delhi, um, winter is bad, you know, Um, but I I never experienced five days or seven days in a row of bad pollution. Hmm. So in that regards, I don't really know what kind of, what set of, you know, indexes people are looking at, you know. Um,
0: Okay, let's move on to traffic. How does traffic in Delhi compare to, to Beijing?
1: First of all, there aren't as many roads in in Delhi, so I definitely think that traffic is a lot worse here. You know, <laughs> that, I mean, you know, they have good infrastructure here. You know, hardware is definitely you know uh, Chinese do a lot better, um, but um, yeah, yeah, traffic is is worse. And although you know, I, I think I think India recently they they come up with a a, a good highway. Uh, connecting to the airport somewhere, so they're, they're trying to play catch-up, but there's this certain complacency with the Indians that is a bit refreshing to me, even though it, it it could be very irritating, you know, trying to get people motivated to do things, but um, I, 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 I get this sense, now that I'm back in, in Beijing for about two months now, this sense of, like, Great urgency, everybody's running. Um, uh, there's just not a whole lot of time to wait, and people cutting. We've got line.
0: a lot of stuff to do in the city, yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: back, in you know, yeah. think of it. And so, so in that sense, I, I'm like, okay, here, I'm back in China now. You know? The action, so yeah, yeah the the action very, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I want to add that the, I, I do sense that while I was in Delhi, I, I did encounter some Chinese travelers. There seemed to be more Chinese, um, searching for the uh, spirituality. Oh, ah, you know, that's interesting. Yeah, they're, they're definitely, I think after, you know, there's, there's been what, uh, after 2008, you know, coming out party is over, and then there's been so much emphasis on money and materialism. After that, what else is there? I think people are beginning to think more about it, you know, so which I think that's a, that's a good thing. You know, yeah, so.
2: Travel books are really big in the Chinese market, you know. There's one called like sleeping on eighty couches, or surf couch surfing, I should say, for young you know the young girl went around the world. Tibet's really big amongst the Chinese middle class, you know, right. going to Tibet and going to India. Yeah, it's spiritual.
0: Growth. Slackers and hippies, that's great. Or China class. needs more slackers and hippies, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay.
1: But I I also want to add a little bit about the literature, a uh, literary scene, you know. I'm yeah, like, please do. Um, I. I have to say, um, I think a lot of people uh, assume that because I was in Delhi that I I got, um, uh, you know, I, I would be surrounded by, by writers and authors. In a sense, it's, it's true, but it's also not true. But it's true in a sense that I, I got invited a lot by um, publishing um, firms, you know, trying to you know do book launches. Um, I think it's more of a scene for established Writers in in Delhi, um, I I tried I did a workshop, um, um, you know, write writers workshop, and and even though there were some beginner writers, but I I didn't get the sense of like uh, great support and people wanted to you know uh, um, help each other a lot. You know, I I was rejected. Oh well, I tried to join a writers group one time and and. I was told that I have to submit my writing first. And if the committee thought that my writing was good enough, then I would be in. If not, no, no way. So <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Was this um,
2: a regular writing group or like a prestigious writing group? N- no, just somebody
1: I, I, I know. Well, uh, well, I, I take it back. A, a, a writer um, uh, whom I met on a bus heading for Jaipur Literary Festival. Right. So, So she's kind of... Um, getting somewhere. Let's let's put it. There's, there's a bit of bit of like self importance there, right? Let's, and the
2: Jaipur Literary Festival was really big. Yeah, they yes, had very big. And might I add, is a authors. bit
1: too big. It's one of the reasons why it's so popular and so big is because it's free. All the events right. are free. Yeah. And 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 you know it's been what six seven years into it now, and I think that. Um, it, it, it's becoming a bit of a tourist trap, you know, when, uh, when tourists think that, oh, I, I, I'm going to put that one on my map as well. And and uh, even though I, I love that the first two years I joined, but I, at the end of the day, I, I still want to be able to get my seat when I want to, you know, listen to a certain session. And, and it's right, very frustrating right. if I have to fight. I really, I had to fight off. Wow. A few times, and people, you know, the minute I I want to I want to you know wash my hands and my seat. Karan,
0: what about like in Delhi? The the how cosmopolitan is it in comparison to Beijing? And by cosmopolitan, I don't mean how many foreigners are living there. I mean the city itself. How open is it to foreign culture? And you know, uh, uh, my. Specific question relating to the Beijing part of it is Beijing is very open to foreigners doing their thing. You know, the Chinese government and people generally don't care what foreigners do as long as they don't, you know, frighten the children, essentially. You can do your own thing. But it's not very open at all in terms of really allowing foreign culture to to flourish organically and to grow Uh, And I think it's not only the government. I mean, I think the society in Beijing, it can be very welcoming to new ideas, but it's still quite resistant. You know, uh, foreigners are not integrated into Beijing life. Most foreigners are still very transient. There are very few foreigners who stay here longer than 10 years. Uh, Those kind of questions, how does Delhi compare? And does that make sense, Alice, before? Yes. Yeah.
1: I think, in a way um Delhi is even more transient. This may come as a surprise, okay, there are long time um residents, you know foreign residents but but i I tell you, give an example um uh we during the five years stay uh of our stay in delhi we we had like you know four rounds of friends you know because people typically stay two years because um, I have a theory about this. Because um, in in Delhi you could, you don't have to make any kind of emotional uh, cultural investment because you don't have to learn the language people already speak English, so a company can afford to send uh, you know uh, their expat employees uh, to stay there for you know a couple of years and take them out and send them to another post you know whereas here I think even though you may get the sense it's transient. Um, I, th- I think my my experience is that people stay four or five years, you know, because mm-hmm. they have to make the investment in the language.
0: And does Delhi not have like in Beijing? I mean, there are people, I suppose, like me and many of the uh, people we know, who came here because they were very curious about China, foreigners, and yes. then they've they've kind of stayed because they're like grrr, yeah. gnawing at the bone. Yeah. Do you have people like that in India? People who've kind
1: of. I, I sense that there are a lot of. British uh, people, slightly older, if you may, you know, they have this nostalgia about the India. colonies,
2: the, the colony. colony, exactly.
1: Oh, Whereas the younger, uh, younger expats, I, I think, you know, I hear a lot of, you know, they are disgruntled about the inconveniences, you know. Um, compare, I mean, compared to China, and to Beijing, you know, the hardware definitely is much better here. Um. But this is not to say that you don't see a lot of backpackers uh, in search of you know spirituality, if you will. You know, but but overall, I do I do say that because they don't have to make that huge language investment, learning the language. And by the time you learn Chinese, it's one it's got to be one of the hardest languages to learn. Yeah. Um, you you tell yourself, I by gosh, I want to make this worth my while, so you want to stay longer, and the company that sent you here also wants. You to stay longer, so so by contrast, I do I do think that people tend to stay a little longer in in China,
2: but not too it's, long, it's, right? Right, but not all your life, but it, it's even in North China, Kaiser,
0: not all your right. life. Oh, well, yeah, there are some very few,
2: very few <laughs> Kaiser.
0: So, well, <laughs> cool. Kaiser is young, is, is is relatively young man. I, I, I mean Sydney Shapiro, I'd put in that right. list. Yes. The <laughs> people one. in their nineties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of dead as
2: well. Yeah. But, I mean, um, well, I mean, I think that India is really different, you're right, because from the literary scene point of view, there's so many Indian writers that have made it across to the UK and the US because they write in English, right? And China will never have that advantage. You know, Salman Rushdie, Vikram Seth, Pankaj Mishra, well, mm-hmm. you know, the number of Indian writers we can list off is not comparable to the number of Chinese writers, which, right, the mo- at the moment, is just more yen.
0: That's
1: true. That's yeah. True. So
2: I think that India really does have an advantage. I,
1: I, I have a feeling that the Chinese authors are more accessible, especially the ones who want to go out, if you will. You know, who, uh, you know, who want to have their works translated, their. You know, correct me if I'm They're wrong. They're friendlier yeah. to foreigners. They're friendlier, yeah, right. and and also I I, I want to add that the fact that you have a bookworm like an organization like Bookworm or Sinica, you know, you have a lot more grassroots sort of
0: grassroots art, foreigner um, propaganda organizations yeah. <laughs>
1: happening yeah. here, which is yeah. which is great. Whereas I. I don't think that in Delhi scene, you know, have people stay long enough to create that kind of. And you
0: don't have Indians creating the scene. I mean, why aren't they doing it for themselves?
1: Right. Penguin, Penguin I mean. India. Or... Um, yeah. That, that, of course, they have. They have, the, yeah. But, but India is much more sort of uh, complex scene because they have so many, uh, you know, uh, dialects as well. So it's not as cohesive, if you will, you know.
0: Right, you have India isn't a Indian isn't a very and,
1: and yeah specific I mean, identity a compared to
0: being Chinese. Yeah, it's where you're a foreigner, you're Chinese, basically. India it's much
1: more homogenous society uh, than you think. Whereas mm. you know, and you speak Hindi, um, you cannot go to the to go to Kerala, you know, uh, um, and, and try to speak Hindi. They look down on you. There's a tremendous. Uh, north-south sort of a divide, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you have to speak their own local language, you know, or otherwise, you know, you just revert back to English.
2: That's really interesting, Sarah. I think there are books by Pankaj Mishra that I can't understand because he's talking about all the different languages, all different regions and switching very fast, right? So for me as an English language reader, I will get very confused. And in comparison, maybe Chinese writers are a lot simpler, because they write about the countryside, and <laughs> or they write about the cities. But I'd like to ask
0: one final question because we're running out of time. Also, again, to both of you about Indian and Chinese writers. So, um, you, you say, Karen, that perhaps because they write in English, they have you know greater access. You know, they're published more more frequently. Is it only language though? Isn't there also some uh, a cultural phenomenon? Because I feel that it's. It seems to me that it's much easier for indians to plug into western culture even if they haven't got a lot of experience of it than it, than it is for chinese is that does that make sense
1: i i don't know i think indian the indian authors you know they, they benefit tremendously from the 200 years of colonial rule um they you know and, and a lot of them are you know they they're educated at cambridge you know, and, yeah. and the the British uh, system, they, they, they really live it, you know, whereas I think one of the biggest challenges that the Chinese authors face is, how do you explain to the world of this 30 years of big vacuum called the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward? And, and um, you know, I, I spoke to Joe Lusby, you know, at the Penguin um, China, and, and the, the authors that can go out, so, you know, the authors, um, Chinese authors who can go out are really the ones who can cross that cultural barrier like Mai Jia, for example, you know, the espionage, um, the writer who writes about it. Right. You know, so espionage a, world. A um, book that's, you know, Penguin yeah. published that's right. currently and, and it's just coming receiving out. rave it's, reviews. It's getting a lot of press right, right yeah. now. And, and one reason why he is successful, not only because we all love secrets, you know, is that he is one of the very few um, authors who can write in the more, in, in, a, in a style, in a writing style that, that the Western readers can relate, you know, and he, he writes about, you know, uh, novels, uh, I mean, uh, uh, stories that are very character driven.
0: They're also not about peasants who are being fucked over, if you'll forgive that's, my language, which matter. I think the Western reading public is a little bored of.
1: Exactly, Eric Abrahamson was was talking about this uh, at the Bookworm recently, and 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 this huge, you know, this modernization, this migration from from rural part of the country to to cities. Um, it's you know, how long has it been, um, you know, when the Western readers experience something this this you know the huge migration experience I mean long 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 time ago, so they they they're having a hard time relating to this so mm-hmm. and, and also he, he mentioned that you know the, the, in the in the traditional Chinese writing style, uh, a lot of the male authors tend to tell want to tell the big stories and 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 that's when they tend to lose the audience. you know just, just, if you can focus on one aspect of life, you know maybe maybe you can have a better time relating to the Western readers.
2: Yeah, I mean, I also, I've also spoken to Joe, to and she still likes the big rural writers, right? She likes Mo Yan, and she likes Su Tong, and she likes sort of, you know, uh, Yan Lian Ke, I guess, as a later generation. I think there is, you know, I go back and forth on this all the time, because I, you know, I'll read a, a novel by a youngest writer, like Mai Jia or whoever, you know, who grew up during the Reform and Opening Era, had no experience with the Cultural Revolution, is now coming to age... Uh, in a literary way, you know, and writing their best books. Although I guess the the Mai Jia one that was actually written a long time ago, just recently translated. Um, and I think that they don't really have the chops for it right now, you know. They And Mai Jia's succeeding novels weren't as good as Decoded, you know. So, I mean, I also think that Chinese the Chinese literary culture is incredibly diverse at the same time you have with these rural writers then you have the younger writers rebelling against the rural writers right and you have the thrillers and you have the women's writing which is all about sort of a little bit about sex but also rebellion and then you have you know the post-90s writers who are writing about the internet and posting only on the internet right and they're and all of it's too much too fast not enough editing yeah and too Um, much too fast not enough editing not enough thinking and then the environment i often think is not good enough to foster these writers you know everyone like we were talking about before are after economic growth they're after money they're after fame gucci bags no one's going to look at a writer and say great great job you know and without that sort of environment yeah they don't have the audience they They don't have the audience so so what are you going to do Write into a black hole you know there's only so many years you can write into a black hole and just think well fuck it, you know, I'm going to go and get a job at the Deutsche Bank, you know, right? So, I mean, so I think this is totally different to probably what I imagine other cultures, you know, people, the best Indian writers that we know did study at Cambridge, right? They spoke English growing up. Um, Sometimes they don't study in Cambridge, but they study at the best Indian universities and they have a literary culture that's very different to China's. So I I do think there's a cultural difference between China and India and probably there's a lot of themes that people can't, Understanding English definitely, but at the same time, I think the literary culture here is extremely terrible. Yeah,
0: (laughs) okay. On that uh, slightly depressing note, let's move on to the final section of the show. I'm
2: always always so depressing.
0: Recommendations. Okay. So um, I'm going to start, and my recommendation is connected with something we talked about a little earlier on the show, the experiences of in the 80s, the dorky uh, white guy in Japan, which is a, 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 a cartoon uh, that is on the internet if you search for it which is pretty funny called Charisma Man which is basically a, a, a little cartoon about a dorky western guy flipping hamburgers at McDonald's and goes to Japan and he becomes Charisma Man and uh, it's quite a lot of fun if you're thinking about that subject. Um, Karen?
1: um I, I have to say I haven't really um, been here long enough to really do a lot of local recommendations but um, I would say that as, um, I would recommend Hong Ying's uh, Daughter of the River. is not a new book, but um, it's a book I, I read, um, you know, and uh, admired, you know, because uh, it's it's definitely autobiographical. And I um, admire her courage, you know. She's especially coming from this uh, background, this culture, you know, and bearing it all, you know, about you know the ugly the the ugly family secrets, if you will, and and. Um, and also be a spokesman for the common people, you know, people from Chongqing, you know, and, and um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy reading this book and I highly recommend it.
0: Great.
2: Yeah, that's a great recommendation, but um, I, I want to counter my negative attitude because i do think
0: (laughs) yeah because you know who's listening You and you have a visa renewal coming up probably yeah i know i know i mean i'm just (laughs) i'm so down yeah yeah no let's have some pro china propaganda let's let's do some pro stuff
2: um so i recommend uh following the facebook feed of an agent a literary agent who's based in taiwan called gray tan his agency is called gray hawk i
1: have heard of them
2: and he is responsible for my jazz Decoded, which right. is now being raved reviewed at the Economist and the Telegraph, and you know. So um, his, you can follow him on Facebook. You don't need to befriend him, I think. And he recently shared this huge post about how he just sold the rights f- to a, Chi- a young Chinese writer, post eighties called Yangler. He sold her book, her newest book, to a French and a German, and then he publisher. And then he goes runs down this sort of what he did. To get it there, and full disclosure, the original book report was done by my husband, so you know, <laughs> commissioned by Gray. But then Gray' Tan's a great uh, agent to follow. If you want to know more about literary translation, um, and also know more about how translation works, and what Chinese writers are being promoted abroad for what reasons they're being promoted, and how actually the warming part of the story is that Gray really, really believed in this book, decoded. That's the heartwarming thing that I want to come up with is that the reason that Decoded is now being absolutely, you know, rave reviewed is because Gray Tan, uh, Tan Guanglei, he's a Chinese, uh, Taiwan guy, you know, he signed it um, and he is now absolutely thrilled, you know, so there are such, there are very many good stories and don't believe my cynicism. So okay I mean,
0: you know and because business. Taiwan is part of China I'll um, you know Well, he comes to the mainland uh, you know, all okay. the time, all the time. <laughs> um, so you know he does his
2: business yeah.
0: all right Alice uh, thank you very much it was great having you on the show again you're welcome please. and Karen Ma author of Excess Baggage it was great to have you on the show and for the first thank time thank
1: you so much for having me
0: our pleasure and uh, listeners out there we will see you or you will hear us again next week on the Seneca podcast